This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hi, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here. You're host of the For the Love podcast. You guys, welcome to the show. We are in a series right now that is so powerful. It's called For the Love of Therapy. You know, we thought about being cute with the name, but we were like, let's just hit it right on the nose. For the Love of Therapy. Obviously, we have had tons of therapists on the show. They've weaved in in a million different series for different reasons, hitting on a therapeutic aspect of one of the themes, but it was certainly time to center therapy as its own subject. And so we have assembled an amazing roster of therapists and experts and mental health specialists. And and we really have built this series out to hit various like layers of the therapy conversation so that we're not missing any of the hidden corners. And so I really love today's conversation. Really, really love it. It, This is an empowering conversation. Anybody who, whatever life is giving you right now that is circumstantial in nature. So your outside, you know, influences on you that you have no control over are creating a complete experience for you. This conversation is going to serve you well. Because it will remind you, if you dial in here, that you have a ton of agency. And it's not expensive. It doesn't cost money. It's at your fingertips. It's as close as your own breath, literally. And so I really love today's guest. Have you ever seen that little meme on the internet that says, humans are basically houseplants with more complicated emotions? I like that. I mean, we definitely need sun, water, (laughs) basics. But our emotions are just as important as nourishment. We actually cannot flourish until we stop and listen to what our body and our feelings have to say, because our body, she will never, ever lie to us. So our guest this week is helping us here, tuning in with that listening, explaining why it matters. You're going to love what she has to say. We have Dr. Anita Phillips here today. She's a trauma therapist and a life coach, and her work lies at the intersection of mental health, obviously, faith, and culture, which is, of course, super fascinating to me and an intersection I have lived at most of my life. 
So she has seen firsthand, and she's going to talk about her own story for a little bit, the beauty that can come out of embracing our emotions head on, even when they're messy or painful. So Dr. Nee is a third generation pastor's kid, which has its own set of complexities. She grew up with a sister with a mental illness, which she talks about at the top of the show, which obviously impacted not just her whole family, but her her initial curiosity into mental wellness and mental illness, you know, flip side of the coin, which left her with a lot of questions and ultimately turned into her pathway into her field. She is a sought after speaker with countless media appearances. She's the host of In the Light with Dr. Anita podcast. She's an advice columnist at Oprah Daily. And then she's got a book out that I cannot recommend enough. It's called The Garden Within. You're just going to want to stick it in your shopping cart. And you'll see why. At the end of this conversation, you will see how this material and metaphor weaves through her instruction in a way that it's just powerful. Everything that she has to teach us about emotional processing and how we are designed is just enlightening and encouraging and empowering. And I told her at the end of this conversation, I'm just walking away feeling like I have a lot of control over what I do with my feelings, with my emotions inside my body. And those are not, they're not like red flags. They are as she calls them, hunger pains. They're clues. They are telling me the best, healthiest path forward. And you're going to see what I mean. She is so engaging, so lovely and smart and encouraging. I'm so happy if you haven't already met her, it thrills me to get to introduce you today to Dr. Anita Phillips and just welcome her to the show, guys. Dr. Anita, I am just delighted to have you on the show. Your work is so profound. I love the way that you are instructing in the world. I obviously love your messaging, of course, and I'm just grateful. I'm in this stage of life where I am like, my eyes are just roaming for my teachers and my mentors and my leaders, and you're one of them. And so thank you for being on the show and for being a part of this therapy series. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for those really kind words. It's such a privilege to be able to pour out things that bless people. You know, <laughs> that's that's what we're, yeah. what we're out here for. You're right. I mean, that's good work to be in, whatever it is. When you get to pour out goodness onto other people, keep doing it. So I have told my listeners a little bit about you, those of them who aren't already familiar with you. I wonder if you would mind walking it back for us just a bit. And could you talk a little bit about not only just growing up as a PK, which I was too, which is formative for a lot of reasons. And if you're willing, I'd love to hear you also talk about having a sister who was diagnosed with a mental illness, because that's also formative and shapes your family and your responses to the world. And so if you could talk a little bit about your your story, your sort of coming up story and and the questions that that began to raise for you, questions that you ultimately followed into what became your life's work, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm a trauma therapist. Hardly anybody goes into this line of work who hasn't survived a lot of trauma. And my sister's mental illness, the manifestation of that was certainly my earliest experiences with trauma. As you mentioned, I'm a pastor's kid. I'm a pastor's grandkid. 
And both my parents are preachers. And so part of that formative experience was having a mother who was also a preacher. But when my sister's mental illness first manifested, I was about six. She was about 11 or 12. And she woke up in the middle of the night screaming because she saw a demon standing in our bedroom door, the door, that room that we shared. And I didn't see it. And so because of the environment where we grew up, Pentecostal as well, I would say it was a spiritually active environment. And so it was not out of the realm of possibility that she did see a demon standing in our door. And so my parents came, finally the screams woke them up and we prayed. And when she looked up and didn't see the demon anymore, we thought everything's fine. Now this is the early eighties. So it really wasn't an issue at that time that my parents didn't believe in mental illness. So they were rejecting that as an explanation on the list of multiple choice options to explain this mental illness was not on the list. Totally. And so that just wasn't a conversation be, really. Right, anybody it was had having. to be spiritual. So with that, yeah. but the hallucinations mm-hmm. continued. And so it started to be very distressing. Obviously for me, that midnight alarm of her just screaming in the middle of the night, just shaking my body. So that was traumatic. But then not having an explanation for what's happening is its own form of trauma. The trauma overwhelms not only our body's capacity to cope with what's happening, but it breaks our frame of reference. When we cannot explain this in any way, that is also traumatizing because the world becomes chronically unsafe. And so spiritually, these questions are being formed. You know, my parents are ministering to other people, seeing people get better, have their lives improve. But my sister was continuing to spiral and eventually got addicted to drugs. She found out that drugs made the voices that we didn't know she was hearing go silent and stop the hallucinations. And then, of course, addiction became its own problem. So we lost her to 30-something years in the streets while we continued to live the best that we could. And so it did bring up a lot of spiritual questions. Why is this happening? Why does it seem like my parents' prayers are not being answered? And my mom, I, I give her so much credit in that she was careful to always say, I don't understand what's going on. I see the tears streaming down my mother's face, but also saying, I believe that God is good and that one day we'll understand this and it will be something that we missed, a ball we dropped, but it won't be that God wasn't good. And that was incredibly formative for me because it anchored me and gave me an expectation that there could be an explanation that I could also get from our spiritual space. Even though I went into the profession and got all the pro information, I still had spiritual questions and God has been faithful to answer those for me. So did you move directly into your field? Did you have any like in between stages or did you come out of the gate going, this is going to be my work? I definitely had some in-between stages. I had one I had in-between stages with my faith, just as a teenager saying, like, I need some more things to add up. You know, I'm a scientist by nature and things just didn't seem to be adding up. So definitely had some issues there and actually started college as a math and physics major. That was where I, I was spending my time, but found myself in, I was like calculus level three and there were no numbers. It was just all these squiggly lines. And I thought, this is getting out of hand. And I also yes. worried about spending my whole life like with a calculator and a, and a telescope. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I need to be around people. So I moved from there to sociology and just looking at human behavior on the larger scale. And then gradually found myself narrowing down and to the individual and ended up in the therapy space, started out as an addictions counselor, even though I told myself consciously it had nothing to do with my sister. 
because we like to lie to ourselves. And then rolled into the trauma space because I started recognizing trauma in my own life that what had happened to me as a child was still echoing. And I couldn't sleep with the door open. Even as an adult, I was still closing the door at night because of that dark hallway, that rectangle scaring my body. And it had been such a long time. I didn't realize it woke up in the middle of the night one night and my husband at the time had left the bedroom door open and my body went into a complete panic. And it took me a minute to figure out why. And then I was like, ah, the door's open. And so that was my introduction to trauma. Trauma wasn't in our everyday vocabulary then. And I realized something is still alive here. And so that helped to start to turn the corner for me as well. And so found myself studying trauma and it's been great work. Which at the time was sort of emerging, right? Like this is something we are collectively beginning to understand a little bit better. We have Mm -hmm. more language around Mm -hmm. trauma. There's more research. It's just the subject of a lot more professional and psychological attention. But again, that's in the last generation. Wouldn't you say like, I can imagine you have watched this field change in front of your eyes in real time. Very much like, so. And I love that better. it's catching up. Oh, for the better. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially with our understanding of trauma as a physical experience, emotion as a physical experience. When I stepped into this field 20 years ago, cognitive behavioral therapy, we call it, was the reigning paradigm. And everything was about the mind, the mind, the mind. But the experiences that I was having in my body were not lining up with what I was being taught about the mind as this master control switch that produced everything. You know, I had my daughter, gave birth to my daughter at home, both my children I had without medication. And I had studied how that worked and found that my emotions were actually guideposts that told me where I was in the labor process. And so I was able to predict my daughter's birth timing better than the doctor on the phone because I knew where I was emotionally. So I was having these experiences with my emotions and with my body that did not line up with this idea that our thoughts reign supreme. And that's one of the things that opened the door to me looking at trauma more deeply. Yeah. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about our emotions. Let's start high level. Can you just give us the lowdown really on how it is biologically, really, that our emotions fit into our our overall makeup as humans, the science around how this uniquely human quality in a lot of ways is a super important part of our overall design, frankly, crucial to either our flourishing or our lack thereof, right? Can you just, let's start there and then we can drill in. Sure. So let me give you a definition of emotion that is current with the science, but also with my spiritual perspective, which is this. Emotion is a bodily experience that we have in response to the situations around us. And so it's simply the impact that a situation has on my body and my brain. We have to think about it fully because we have been so mind-focused that we've been brain-focused, but our entire bodies are a part of this. And emotion actually precedes our thought processes. And that is a huge change for most people. But in about 2010, there was a big shift in the neurobiology research that helped us to see that emotions were actually foundational and that the mind really is an extension of how we're feeling. 
It had not been seen that way previously because there was a cultural bias towards the mind. And so all the science was approached with a question, how do we control emotion so that the mind can work better? And so that bias was leading to outcomes that were biased. But even in theories of evolution, which would speak about the thinking brain being higher than the feeling brain, the question arose that if emotions are problematic, why aren't they being selected out? Mm. all these generations Mm. of human beings, right, evolving, and the emotional part of us is as strong as ever. So if this is really a problem or it's really something left over from past states, why isn't it being selected out? And so everyone has had to reorient themselves to what's going on with emotion. It turns out that we are gardens. See yourself as a garden and that your heart is the soil of your life. Your emotional life is watering everything that grows. And so just as the soil precedes the plant, the heart precedes the mind. It nourishes it, it positions it, or it can weaken it if the soil doesn't have what it needs to offer the plant. And so we really need to shift to this model that understands ourselves as gardens because it helps us to see that all of our parts are interdependent. You don't have your heart over here, your mind over there, your behavior over there. Seeds are beliefs. Emotions are in the soil. The plant is is the mind, like our thoughts, and then the fruit is our behavior. Seeds, soil, plant, fruit, beliefs, feelings, thoughts, behaviors. And none of them can exist separately from one another but nothing that grows in the garden can exceed the health of the soil. And nothing in your life will exceed the well-being of your heart. Your emotional well-being is the cornerstone of everything else that's happening. I love hearing you talk about this. First of all, because it just rings true. It, It feels true experientially. Just to look at myself observationally and realize that my emotions are, that's the starting line of whatever comes after, but it's a tricky, it's a tricky conversation. It's, I think it's a tricky topic. I think particularly for women, our emotions have been leveraged against us for so long. Like this is why we have been called the weaker sex, right? Like literally rooted in this idea that our emotions are hysterical and they're not useful at work and they're best left at home and in our relationships even. You're out of control. You're just crazy. You're So our feelings get negated under this umbrella of our emotions being negative or unrestrained, uncontrolled. Like this is just an out of control weed growing in the garden. And then of course, you and I have this in common and a lot of my listeners do too, even at least the faith that I came up through wasn't helpful either because I was largely taught both directly and covertly by osmosis. Yeah. (laughs) By osmosis (laughs) that my feelings were not trustworthy, that I couldn't trust feelings, faith over feelings. And that in fact, that a huge, huge portions of faith involved cognitive dissonance where they didn't match up. I'd like to just hear you talk about overcoming both our personal resistance to this really important 
instruction that you are talking about. Right. So let's let's look at again breaking down kind of the cultural bias that has happened particularly in the west in western culture. I go into this in my book The Garden Within in I think it's the second chapter where I talk about kind of the history of bias against emotion in western thought. And so we can take that all the way back to Plato. Plato's name is the root word of platonic. This idea of a love that is not driven by passion, this platonic thing. And so Plato had some issues with emotion. He felt that they were the lower irrational part of us, except for platonic love and compassion. Other than that, he felt like emotions really needed to be controlled and sedated, that they were part of this lower nature. And that kind of spilled over into a movement by a group of philosophers called the Stoics. That's where we get the word, be Stoic. And their thought was that emotion needs to be suppressed entirely in order for us to be rational. And some of the early church theologians absorbed this into the faith space. And so this idea of being unemotional was absorbed into the idea of what Christian perfection is. And so once you take something that someone believes anyway, culturally, and then you put some scripture on it, now it's like, oh, it's not just us, it's God, then nobody's allowed to argue with it. And so we've inherited this idea that Christian perfection includes heavily emotionally controlled behavior, which is one of the reasons, one of the many things that have been in division in different ethnic spaces, right? Because at Black church, there's lots of emotion. Like we, we're going to make the noise. We're going to express the feelings. But even then there would be this end point where you have to pull it together now and make all of your decisions with just your mind. So I wanted to explain that kind of how it leaked into our faith space, but it makes no sense because at the center of our faith was Jesus, the human. And Jesus was intensely emotional. When I really started like reading scripture through this lens, I'm like, Jesus is crying and yelling and freaking out in Gethsemane. Like he never held back a painful emotion. We see Jesus express his painful emotions authentically, publicly, physically, whether it was crying or flipping tables or sweating blood. He is physically expressing his emotional pain in pain and verbally. He says to the disciples in the garden, I am sorrowful unto death. Keep me company. I don't want to be alone right now. That's essentially what he's saying. And we have skipped over this intensely emotionally expressive Jesus who we are supposed to pattern our lives after. So that was a real spiritual shift for me. Because it breaks away all of the cultural things. You know, a lot of times we, we study scripture and we want to talk about the culture in which it was written, but we're not paying attention to the culture in which it's being read right now. How have we not seen this part of Jesus explicitly? And every single time Jesus expressed a, an intensely painful emotion, he did something miraculous right after. He's crying at Lazarus's tomb and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Like my emotional pain does not, squelch my spiritual power. He's just flowing in and out of those spaces. And the other thing about Jesus's emotional life that blew me away was that Jesus knows the outcome of the situations that he's in, yet because he was wearing a human body, he still expressed the pain of the process. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he crying? Because there was still pain in the process. And we've been taught as Christians that if we believe that have faith, it's going to turn out good, then we wouldn't be crying. We wouldn't be sad. We wouldn't be scared. That's insane because we have bodies and we're humans. Now the science is catching up with that and showing that emotion actually is this foundational experience. But like you said, you said it perfectly. 
experientially, this feels true because we know that we would rather someone be mindless than heartless. We know that. I'd rather be in a relationship with someone who is mindless sometimes than heartless ever because we understand on a gut level that emotion brings a flexibility to our decision-making that is important. We don't want robotic decision-makers. We want people who have heart, who recognize humanity. And so emotion has always been a part of human decision-making. And the research is now showing up to maybe 90% of our decision-making is shaped by where we are emotionally, just like water from the soil gives the plant its shape. Emotion gives our thoughts their shape. So when a plant is wilting, we put the water in the soil, not on the plant. We don't spray the leaves. And in the same way, when our minds are distressed, when our thoughts are difficult and painful, they need water. You need to check where you are emotionally instead of just trying to think up something different. That's why it never works to try to think your way out of how you feel. It never works, maybe for a couple hours, but when you wake up at 3 a.m., Emotion is like, hey, how are you? Here I am. And so it's a time for us to turn to the space that has always been most special about how we're created. And that is our emotional lives. It's the soil of your life. It's where everything grows from. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. I'd love to hear, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit of your personal experience with this, both as a professional who is onboarding just this research, this truth, this way of understanding the human experience. And and then as a person, like, oh, I get to feel my personal feelings when I need to feel them which is all the time. So there's both this way that you would you would follow this data, if we're going to just be scientific about it, into both your work, but also into your life, including a bit of a, a rework around how you are perceiving your own faith and your own Jesus. So the, the, you've got some intersections here that I'd love to hear you talk about and what that looked like for you and where your, your faith is now and also the way in which you self manage your own emotions and regulate and like let those I just like to hear kind of how yeah, this played sure. out in your real life. Yes, as I mentioned earlier, it was a real turning point for me, my birthing process of my children. 
and learning that where I was emotionally was an indicator of where I was in the birth process. My, I was in labor with my daughter for about 12 hours and we were calling the midwife every two hours and she's like, oh, you're not close. You're not close. But what I had learned about where I was emotionally was telling me that I was much further along than she thought. My water didn't break until I was pushing, which is a thing that rarely happens. So they were looking for all these signs physically that they could see, but internally I was like, nope, this emotional state says I'm here, I'm there. And so the fact that I was able to internally focus my awareness on where I was emotionally and then follow that through to the birth of my child, I felt so incredibly powerful. And that was where that was born, that my emotional life can be a source of power in my life. If I learn to listen to myself and trust what I'm feeling inside my own body. But because we have stigmatized emotion, in order to not feel the painful ones, we have disconnected from our bodies. And that's another problem, seeing the body as a problem as well. And so that started my journey of kind of gathering myself together when I had that experience of finding out how powerful I could be as a woman. I have birthed a human based on my internal information. And that is huge because women are taught not to trust their gut, not to trust their intuition, but we have so much power in that space. And so that from there, I started noticing things as a young counselor and I was doing group counseling at churches for sex abuse survivors. I was listening to people share their stories and I'm a sexual assault survivor myself. And I started noticing that some people were telling their story in physical terms, like what they felt physically. And some people were telling their story in emotional terms purely and leaving the physical out. So I started noticing how we isolate different experiences and doing research to see how those things should be connected. And the emotion really ties it all together. So watching other people, reading scripture, everything was telling me that what I'm learning academically is incomplete, that this focus on the mind is just not correct. And so it's been a huge eye-opening experience for me. It made me a better mother, much better mother. When my daughter started having some challenges in middle school, she was naturally more emotionally expressive than I was. My personality is not naturally emotionally expressive. And that pushed me to touch my own heart more deeply so that I could meet her there. Instead of trying to drag her up into the mind realm, I said, no, I'm going to go meet her on the ground of her heart. And that brought some healing to me. And so this has been something that I've developed this awareness and it made a huge difference in my relationship with my children, helped me to raise them to be emotionally healthy, but also it made a big difference in my spiritual life because I started going to the presence of God differently. I think a lot of us have been trained to compose ourselves before we pray. I don't have to compose myself in my most emotionally painful moments right there. I now go, I now invite God into that space, not to hurry up and fix it, but to just be with me. And so I've been, a, I've been so much freer to be messy. And that is the greatest freedom there is. And allow God to be in those places and to touch the little girl inside of me and, and to take care of her. Man, I'm just emotional. I'm emotional all the time. And I'm so proud of that. Because I'm living the most powerful life I've ever lived because of that. That's right. It's not a weakness. It's, it's not. not a deficiency. It's a pathway. That's it. It's a pathway. It's the soil. And- it's the soil of the garden. That's it. I want people to just keep going back to that. The soil of the garden. And, and the fact that we can look at our emotional life as soil is important in so many ways because we understand the foundational nature of it. 
when I plant a seed, a seed is potential, potent potential. I want to unleash the full power of this seed and have it bear full amounts of fruit. It depends on how well the soil is. And that's what I mean when I say my life can be powerful because what I intentionally plant in this heart, boom, I have what I need to unleash the potential of every seed, whether that's spiritual or whether that's my dreams and my goals. I am taking care of myself emotionally. But also when we see our hearts as soil, kind of gets rid of this idea that it's negative because we use words like manage, suppress. I don't think about soil that way. I need to suppress this soil. I need to manage this soil because this soil is inherently bad. This soil is going to be a problem. We do not do that. We're like, what does the soil need? If it's dry, I water it. And I know I will need to water it again in a few days. And when I see it dry again, I'm not like, oh my gosh, this soil makes me sick. This soil is always, this soil never, you're just like, it's normal. It needs water. Why am I stressed? That's how I want us to see our hearts and our emotional lives. It's just soil that we continually nurture. Let's drill into that just a little bit. You've said that emotions can be a bodily experience, kind of what you're just describing, signifying a need that needs met. It's just it. It's like a little clue. Here's a little clue. You have an unmet need. And so I'd like to hear your recommendations really for what does it mean? What does what do we do with that? How do we process our feelings in a way that tends the soil? How do we figure out what needs we are neglecting? How do we listen to our feelings as a partner and a clue giver instead of a problem? Like if you could like heal it back just a little bit, like, and then here is what we sort of do with this. Yeah. So our autonomic nervous system is a division of our nervous system. And it does what it sounds like, automatic things. It keeps our heart beating, keeps us breathing, keeps us alive. Our autonomic nervous system also senses where we are internally and what we need. And then it sends up signals to get the need met. When we are hungry, your autonomic nervous system senses that. And it sends out a signal, hey, we need food. Nobody feels like it's wrong to need food. And so when we find out we're hungry, we eat. Now, if we don't eat all day and then we go to the grocery store or the restaurant, we know what happens. We don't eat the salad. We eat the chocolate. We don't eat the grilled chicken. We eat the fried chicken because we've allowed a need to go unmet for so long that it can compromise how we would like to normally respond. But we don't see the need as bad. We've just failed to take care of it well, and we recognize that. Well, we have other needs as humans besides food and water. We also need connection. We need worth, a sense of worth, and we need safety. When we experience painful emotions, because not all emotions are painful. There's no negative ones, though. They're painful emotions. It is a hunger pang. Sadness is a hunger pang for connection. And so that's why grief feels so difficult when we lose someone to death because we want that connection and it's missing. Sadness is a hunger pang for connection. Anger is usually a hunger pang for worth. When someone has treated us in a way that doesn't reflect our value or someone we love, if someone's bullying our child, we become furious. Why? Our child is so valuable. They have so much worth and someone is treating them in a way that is less than they are worth. We become angry. And we need boundaries to be in place to prevent people from diminishing worth. And then finally, when we are afraid, that is a hunger pang for safety. 
So when I have these emotional experiences, instead of trying to ignore them because they hurt or push them out of consciousness because we don't want them to mess up our decisions, what I need to slow down and do is feed the need. And so if I'm feeling really anxious today, then my question for myself is, where might I find some safety? Do I want to call a friend and say, oh my gosh, I have this thing I have to do and I'm so anxious about it and let them remind me that I'm gifted, that I'm good at what I do, that they'll be there cheering me on and that increases my sense of safety. And now I move forward, but inst- but we don't do that because we've been taught to ignore it. So if I, for instance, move past my anger, which is telling me that that relative at Thanksgiving never treats me the way that I am worth being treated, and I don't address that year after year after year, the Thanksgiving that I blow up the table and quote unquote lose my temper, it's not because anger is bad. It's because I have been letting this need be unmet for so long that finally I was overwhelmed by the need. But that doesn't make the need bad. It means that I haven't been taking care of myself. So just like I can end up eating badly at the end of the day if I starved all day, if I let my need for worth starve for months and years, or my need for connection starve and starve, and then I connect with someone that's maybe not great for me, (laughs) it's because I wasn't paying attention to the need. So painful emotions are hunger pangs for the things that we need. And we have the right as humans to have our needs met. There's nothing wrong. We do. We do. We We were created for it. it. We're created for it. And also that allows us to flourish really ultimately. But I love that self-awareness and that self-compassion. So as we kind of land the plane here, I wonder if you could talk about maybe some of your favorite exercises or practices that helps you and helps your your clients um, recenter or ooh, slow down. Let's let's feel what you're feeling. What is it? Let's identify whatever it is. How do you advise us to help walk ourselves through the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first thing I want us to do is expand our willingness and our capacity to experience our painful emotions. Number one, I don't want to go straight to how to feel better. I want you to allow yourself to feel bad. It's okay not to be okay. Every morning when I open my eyes, I thank God I'm still alive. And then I do a body scan with my eyes closed. Just imagine like a scanner running from the top of my head all the way down my body. And I look for how I'm feeling. Is my stomach tight? Do I have butterflies this morning? Because something exciting is happening. Or do I feel like... My heart feel heavy. Maybe that's some sadness. Or do I feel a tension? Maybe I'm frustrated. So I'm looking for how my body's doing to let me know what emotions are kind of up on the surface as I wake up. Because they are definitely more accessible when we first wake up in the morning. And if there is something there that's painful, what do I need? What do I need to start this day well? What kind of emotional breakfast do I need today? Do I need an extra hug? Do I want to send a text to a friend and say, hey, I'm feeling anxious today. Send a prayer. I'll call you later. What do I need? And even for those of us who go and spend time with God in the morning, do this first, because then you can take your need into your prayer space instead of rushing past it. And so that takes less than 60 seconds. We all have time to do that. 
So do that scan. If you do feel some discomfort in your body that's emotional, just lay your hand on that space and allow it to kind of expand and dissipate like a pond ripple. It's okay. Let it flow through. You don't have to fight it off. So I want people to practice being present with that pain. But when it comes to needing to do some regulation, and that's not to avoid, but to bring your body into a peace state as you move through your day, breathing, there was the breath work. So one simple exercise I always teach, inhale for four through your nose, blow out for eight through your mouth. The extended exhale activates what's called our vagus nerve, which actually looks like a tree in the middle of our bodies. And that activation helps to bring my body into a calmer state. 30 seconds of cold water at the end of your shower actually activates that nerve, which helps to regulate us and will bring our body into a calmer state. Singing, humming, which you can do while you're brushing your teeth, can help. Walking, the rhythmic nature of walking can help. The sound of music can help. Laughter helps. So there are so many little things we can do during the day. And also slow down and touch all your joy points during the day. We skip over joy so much. Like, oh, that was nice. And then we just keep moving. But I want to challenge people to stop every time they have a glimmer moment, a joy moment, and just sit in it for 30 seconds and memorize how it feels in your body. Memorize the joy because you can revisit it later when you need to, to bring yourself back into a hopeful space as necessary. So those are a few tips and I do those things. Those are so good. I love hearing you rattle through those because there exists a story out there that just like emotional health and wellness is really, really complicated, really hard to secure, only available if you can afford super expensive like interventions and therapies. But the truth is there are these low brow, low hanging fruits of music breathing, like walking in the grass, like yourself. That's another great one. Anybody can do squeeze yourself. Yep. I remember I learned that in therapy when I was like, just post at the earliest stage of my divorce trauma, when I just, I couldn't find up from down. These were the practices that I was being handed. Like they're simple, but they work. They work because emotion is a bodily experience. And so I, once I understand that, then I have the power to shift my experience internally, even though I can't control the situation externally. And we go straight to control, but we cannot control all the time what's happening around us. But I have power to shift my body, not just my thoughts, but my body. Then I can alter my internal experience. Yeah, that's brilliant. And it is huge. And I feel so grateful that these are practices that we now get to kind of teach our kids, you know, they're going to come up with better instruction. They just are a better understanding of, of their body is such a good partner, you know, just such a good partner. One of my favorite teachers, Dr. Hillary McBride, she insists that we call our bodies a she or a her because mm. she is me. This she is, is me. My body's not separate from me. It is I, not. This is, is me. Not. My body is me. And that's been a faith issue too, right? Like they're these bodies are like oh, earth gosh. suits that we're just gonna take off. But even then, like the journey of scripture is not finished until we have our resurrected bodies. Like nobody ever points that out. Like this isn't over until my body is back. So our body is. It was always an embodied special. story. 
Yeah. It is always. Oh, bodies yeah. are so special. They're so special. Yeah. I <sighs> thank you so much for just making that clear and plain and simple available to anybody if who can breathe breath, who can laugh out loud, who can hit play on their playlist, like who can choose to honor every emotion that comes up and to sit with it. My therapist had to tell me a hundred times before it sunk in. Jen, sad is not bad. Mad is not bad. And hard is not bad. Because I just assign morality to everything. Scared is not bad. Like we're not assigning like a lack of value to these feelings. They're, They're beautiful markers showing you where to go and their hunger. So will you please, before I ask you one last question, will you just tell my listeners the best places to find you, to find your work, to find your incredible book, to to see you on socials, all the things? Oh, sure. I'm on, uh, well, I can't say all the socials. I spend most of my time on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find me at Dr. Anita Phillips, Dr. Anita Phillips in those places. My website, anitaphillips.com. And you can find my book, The Garden Within, where the war with your emotions ends and your most powerful life begins anywhere books are sold. I pray that you will grab it. That book was an incredible labor. And I believe it will change your life spiritually, mentally, emotionally, biologically, behaviorally, experientially. I believe it will change your life. Oh, yeah. I already told my listeners, this is a must grab, a must get. Put it in your cart right this very second. And it's really, to me, the key that turns a lot of locks. And this would really set a lot of people free in ways that we just can't think our way into. We just can't. And so thank you for this. Here's the last question, Dr. Anita. I ask everybody this, every guest, every series, and you can answer this however you feel like. You can answer it like earnestly, or you can answer it absurdly, and it's all good. So this is, it's Barbara Brown Taylor's question. She's an Episcopal priest. And she came up with this question, which I love, which is, what is saving your life right now? Mm, My friends. Mm, love that answer so much. I have the most incredible circle of women in my life. And I'm so grateful I have not missed out on them. In the middle of my life, when my, um, well, the middle of life I've lived so far, when my children were growing up, you get so busy and kind of lose touch with people. But I, I, I resisted that and started like cultivating my friendships again. And they have been in the most amazing thing. And my friends are saving my life right now in some of the most painful transitions that I've walked through recently. Man, what would I do without those women? I'm so blessed. I feel the exact same Ugh. way. I just exact same way. And I tell them regularly because I'm not married anymore. And that was a relationship I thought I would carry to the bitter end. Right. And I tell them all the time, and I mean it from the bottom. I'm like, you are genuinely like some of the greatest loves of my life. They are. So they are greatest. I feel yeah. like not mar- being myself, not being married anymore, man, but I don't feel unloved. They lavishly loved by them. And I lavishly love them. Yeah. That's a great answer. Thank you so much for being Thanks. on today. And for just this, I'm just encouraged. I'm like just walking away from this interview this morning going, we're never without power ever. It's as close as our own breath. Like this is so much agency. It's just so 
precious to realize and understand how much agency we have over our own well-being. And so thanks for the reminder and the instruction. And there's so much more. I mean, you just gave us the tip here. So appreciate your work in the world. Thank you for all the labor that you do to serve the rest of us. None of this is easy. It's a big lift. And so bravo. And I'm delighted to meet you. And anytime you're in Austin, I'll take you to dinner. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Phillips is amazing, just amazing. And I love this kind of, for me, the embodiment conversation is only, I feel like maybe seven or eight years old. Like it was that recent in my forties that I heard anybody talk to me about the beautiful design of my feelings and of my emotions and what they're meant to do and how they are a partner in my general health and well-being. I just, you know, well, you heard the whole conversation, but I, I this to me, this instruction that is now at so many important intersections, it's it's in the faith conversations now, if that's something that you're a part of. It's certainly in the mental health conversation and the therapeutic space. And it's in the gendered sort of revolution as well that women have said, no, our feelings are not hysterical. They are not overly emotional. They are they are gems. These are our North stars. Anyway, I just love it. I love it. And these have been powerful tools in my hands too. And so way more to come, you guys, you know, like I I think we said this at the top of the show, everybody needs therapy. Therefore, everybody needs a therapy series on a podcast. This, This is free therapy. You guys, it is. This is one hour that you didn't have to pay for. And we're going to serve it up like week after week in this entire series. So if you haven't already subscribed to the show, go ahead and do it just wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, thanks for all your reviews and your ratings. Speaking of, I am delighted to tell you that we have solved the sound issue on the show. So first of all, my deepest apologies for the sound quality the last few weeks. It's too, I can't even begin to tell you the layers of problems (laughs) that I have had. Anyway, we're back. We're back online. Thank you for hanging in with us for like the really like blah sound the last handful of episodes. And hopefully this will please your little earbuds. You guys, more to come in this amazing series. We sure love serving you and we'll see you next week.